Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, I'm here today with my friend, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., to introduce another great sermon from the Contemporary Pulpit. Today, we're going to listen to a message by Dr. Eric Alexander. For more than 20 years, he was the pastor of the great St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow, Scotland, one of the tremendous exemplars of great Scottish Presbyterian preaching. Dr. Smith, what are we going to hear today? Today, we're going to hear a message on Isaiah's experience in the temple as he saw the revelation of God and what that response ought to be to the revelation of God, how it ought to impact and change us. Uh, His polemic is against those who would want to give us a caricature of God over against the real character of God. And so to follow him is to hear him say that the non-fallen creation, the seraphim, respond with holy, holy, holy or the non-rational creation, the doorposts move, and then the fallen creation, that is Isaiah, woe is me, all when the character of God is fully exposed to the point that there is worship and obedience. This is a theocentric sermon. No question. God is front and center, magnifying the holiness, the majesty, the glory, the presence of God. So we're going to hear now a great sermon Rooted in the Scriptures, a great expositional sermon from Isaiah 6 by Dr. Eric Alexander. Let's listen. Well, now it is obviously a great privilege for me to be back again on the campus of Samford University, and particularly to be back at the Beeson Divinity School. And to be in this beautiful chapel One of the things that ornaments it, in my judgment, is that it has no clock. But um, I will take my watch off. My family used to say when I did this, that's Dad's most meaningless gesture. uh, I want to assure you I shall watch it carefully. When Roger Wilmore told me that The scripture reading for this morning was set to be Isaiah chapter 6, and I gathered that the worship would be focused around that. I felt that it would be at least appropriate if I were to turn with you at this time in our worship to think together about the message of these verses we read. And if you did have your Bible open, you would find that a great help. What I shall do is just uh, give you, in the words of what we have been singing, glimpses of truth from this endless, fathomless mine of truth that we could ponder through all our lives and never come to the end of it. Isaiah 6 is, of course, headed in many versions, Isaiah's call or Isaiah's commission, but we are, of course, not really sure precisely at what point in Isaiah's life this incident happened. What is obvious is that it was a crucial moment in his ministry, that it contained one of the most traumatic and glorious experiences 
that he had ever known, and that it was vital for his call to be the man God was meaning him to be in the future. It's quite clear, however, whatever else may be uncertain, it's quite clear that Isaiah wants us to be sure of the time when this incident happened. And he begins the account of it with the words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You will know how many people in your country will say, Now, the one thing I do remember is where I was when President Kennedy died. There are incidents that are markers for us. And this was one of these incidents for Isaiah. Isaiah's reign had been one of the most remarkable in Judah's history. Probably, as someone has suggested, the most distinguished king since Solomon. And he had done great things for his nation and was a man obviously of huge gift and great ability. He started his reign when he was 16 and reigned for 52 years, and you can read the story of it in Second Chronicles 26. But as Isaiah came to a point in his reign, nobody could really put their finger on when, when the whole course of his life and his effect upon the nation changed. There is a terse little phrase in 2 Chronicles 26 which gives us probably the explanation as to why he came to the end of his life dying in ignominy, a leper under the judgment of God. And the phrase is, he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And Isaiah came to the place where he dismissed the word of God as a rule of his life, despised the authority of God, and came to the end of his days a warning rather than an example. I have no doubt that his failure and his fall and his demise at the end of such a life left an impact on the younger generation supremely, don't you think, upon somebody like Isaiah? who probably had seen in this man a national figure on whom the nation would gradually begin to put its trust. And he said, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. I think there were two lessons that Isaiah learned from the whole example of Isaiah or his warning. The first was that you cannot divorce the power of God from the glory of God. Down through the generations, Christian history is marred by the evidence of some who have sought to make that divorce between the power of God and the glory of God. And the reason that you cannot make the divorce and seek to have the power of God for your own glory, which is what Isaiah did, 
is that God has revealed something of his character to us when he tells us, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and I will not give my glory to another. And there was another lesson that Isaiah learned from Isaiah's life, and it was that you cannot make serving God a substitute for knowing God. And all of us are tempted to do that, are we not? To make serving God a substitute for knowing God. And here at this crucial moment of his life, whatever age he was, 16, 20, 21, Isaiah is brought into the presence of God for the purpose of focusing his life on this one thing, the revelation of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of the being of God. And this left its imprint upon him. That's why Isaiah, of course, through the rest of the prophecy, describes God in a favorite phrase that became his stock phrase. He is the Holy One of Israel. And this experience in the temple clearly was formative for the whole of the rest of Isaiah's life. It really consists of two things, and I want in these moments just to say a little to you about each of them. The first is a revelation of God's glory. And the other is the response that Isaiah records for us to that revelation. The revelation is obviously what he is speaking about in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Now, of course, in Scripture, no man is said to be able to live and see the Lord. So this is a very remarkable thing. And we might wonder and, and ask the kind of question I guess many of his contemporaries asked when he told them this. What was he like? What did you see? Describe him for us. But Isaiah discovered, you see, that finite human beings could not really look upon the glory of God. And he begins to tell us, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. He saw that he was a figure of great exaltation and majesty and glory. But then he says, and now for the description, the train of his robe filled the temple. That's all that he can describe. He said the temple was filled with the train of his robe. It's a consistent note in the Old Testament. Do you notice how, for example, the elders of Israel come and they see the glory of God. There they are face to face with God, and God came and met with them. And if people said to them, and what did you see? 
They say the pavement under his feet was sapphire blue. That's what we saw. And that's why Ezekiel, when he is having visions of God and his exalted majesty, says he looked like the resemblance of the likeness to something else. Burning fire, glistering stones, or something of the kind. And what they are saying, you see, is the majesty and glory of God is so overwhelmingly great that he is the unfathomable to us. Now, in a day when the greatness of God, and I speak of to Christian people in our churches, when the greatness of God is represented in the fact that he's a great pal, this infinite, transcendent glory of God is something we need, beloved, to be baptized with. so that we are overwhelmed by his glory. Isaiah tells us there are two things that these seraphic voices sang about. They sang about his holiness. Holy, they cried. Holy, holy is the Lord. And even they are stumped for language because you may know that the Hebrew, well, you will know by this time in this school of divinity, I am sure, the Hebrew language does not have an equivalent for our words greatest, best, richest, or whatever. It does not have a superlative. And instead of saying greatest and best and reddest or whatever, it repeats the language. So Jesus, in the Aramaic form, says, truly, truly, I say to you. And he is repeating it for emphasis. But here, do you notice the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. I think this is the only place where a word is repeated and repeated again in order to give this emphasis. They are saying, God is holy beyond our describing. And the word, of course, means, as you will also know, separate or apart or separated. And holiness is everything in God that sets him apart from us. It is everything in God that sets him above us in his lofty majesty. And it's everything that sets him against us in his righteous judgment. And they are aware of all things of God's infinite holiness. I can just imagine Isaiah saying, why in God's name did our king tamper with such a God or seek to rebel against him? The other word he uses is the word glory, do you notice, or the seraphim do. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. Now, you may also know that the word glory in the Old Testament has the idea of weight in the sense of how heavy something is. And you will know that in ancient cultures it was frequently the tendency for people, still happens I think in some parts of India, to weigh themselves against their wealth. And that is to demonstrate their worth, you see. They are worthy, honorable people who are to be esteemed. The weight of something added to the idea of its worth and glory has that core to it. And what it really is saying to us is that God, the gravitas of God, is an infinite glory which makes him worthy alone in the universe to be worshipped. And so the language of heaven is worthy. Art thou, O God, to be honored and glorified? You are worthy to be praised and adored because he is full of glory. Glory is therefore the outshining of the inward reality of the character and being of God. That's what his glory is. That is why, incidentally, there is no place in the universe where the glory of God shines out more wondrously than in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there the very character of God in his holiness, his justice, his loving kindness and tender mercy, his wrath and his kindness, they are all displayed on the cross. And that glory of God is what they sing about the whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is revealed to us in Scripture in all sorts of places. You'll remember in the law. Do you remember when the fire came down upon Sinai and Moses had to veil his face? It was because the law of God was a revelation of the character or the glory of God. It's revealed in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the whole earth represents his glory in some sense. It's revealed in the creation of man and woman who bear the image of the glory of God. It is supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. But my dear Christian brothers and sisters, have you grasped that the design of our redemption is that the glory of God might be found in us? his redeemed people. The glory you have given me, says Jesus to the Father in John 17, I have given them. Now look at the response to that revelation of God that Isaiah knew. It's a threefold response. Interestingly enough, from the three areas of God's creation, 
First, from the unfallen creation. You know there is an unfallen creation. The seraphim represent that unfallen angelic creation, but these are creatures of God. And then the non-rational creation responds to this revelation because the non-rational creation is the very structure of the temple and the ground beneath their feet which began to tremble at the presence of the Lord. And then there's the fallen creation in Isaiah. Woe to me, he says. Just look for a minute with me at these, will you? Do you notice how that unfallen creation, even those who had never been tainted by sin, the very first thing they do with two of their wings is to cover their faces. They could not. Even unfallen creation cannot look upon the blinding glory of God. The inanimate creation, the non-rational creation, trembles like an earthquake. I spoke to somebody a little while ago who had been in Turkey at the earthquake, and he said to me it was an extraordinary experience, as though the whole of the ground was heaving. That's what Isaiah felt. It was as though the ground beneath him was rumbling and trembling. If human beings do not tremble before God, All nature will. And then the sinful creation. Do you notice how in Isaiah 5 there is a whole series of woes that Isaiah pronounces? Woe to those who add house to house. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. It goes all through chapter 5. And Isaiah must have sounded quite a fearsome preacher when he was preaching that. But when he comes into the presence of God and has a revelation of his holiness... All he can say is, Woe to me, for I am undone, I am ruined, some of the translations put it. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. You know, I rather suppose that in our generation, I need to rephrase that. In your generation, you may find that to have unclean lips is a fairly harmless departure from normality. And it's a strange thing. Here is Isaiah saying, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I think there's all sorts of reasons for that that there isn't time to go into, but let me just say this to you. I never will forget reading for the first time the story of Quasimodo. 
you know, Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame, who climbed up into the heights of Notre Dame Cathedral and took a young woman with him, a beautiful young woman, and there on the ramparts of the edge of the cathedral, he is looking down on the people below and turning to look at her, and after a time she finds him in a corner, bowed with his head on his chest, weeping. And she said to him, concerned for him, why do you weep? And shyly he says to her, I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. Oswald Sanders, the former director of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, has written a terse little line in one of his books, When I read of the Puritans mourning over their sin, I can only conclude that either they were dreadful transgressors or we are very superficial Christians. That's the response of the created order to the revelation of God. But there was another response from God himself, you note. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and from that place of atonement he touched my mouth, the very place where the conviction had settled. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And Isaiah not only needed a revelation of the glory of God, he needed the very work of the Holy Spirit bringing the fruits of atoning grace from the altar and burning out his sin. And now he was equipped for service. And he says, when he hears the voice of God, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The English can be misunderstood, you know. John Oswald, do you know? Your own John Oswald, who has written a two-volume commentary in Isaiah, which is pure gold. One of these sell-your-shirts-and-buy-it books. John Oswald says, what I think Isaiah is really saying here with this hesitant word is, who will go for us? And he says, would I do? I am here. Would I do? And God says, go. And you can go anywhere for him if you're a man or woman who can say of God like Jesus said again and again and again and again, him that sent 
me. May God write his word upon our hearts. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.